Tracing would be calling me RoboPasser with all these gadgets on me. This one here. And I'd like to pray to our Father. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your beauty. Thank you for what you show us and reveal to us through your word. God, just as we look at these words to see ourselves, but also to see how these words point us to Jesus, we ask it in his name. Amen. So today we're looking at how anger, when it rules, it undoes oneness and relationships. If you look at the newspaper recently, if you've looked at it or you've noticed on Channel 7 News, this story about Joan and how she had a coffee mug thrown at her face. Remember this elderly lady? The news article reads this, April 1, Joan Lambrick Vester, 66 of Reading, was a front seat passenger in a car driven by her husband northbound on Interstate 5. Her husband accidentally cut off another driver who became enraged over the incident. Eventually follows them. They exited Interstate 5 at Cypress Avenue. Many of you have done that. The driver followed closely behind, pulled up alongside the passenger side of the car on Cypress Avenue in the area of Hartnell Avenue. Family members told KRCR News Channel 7 that Lambrick Vester rolled down her window, I'll call her Joan, rolled down her window in an attempt to diffuse the tension and talk to the other driver. That's when he threw a travel-style coffee mug through the window, hitting her in the face. Then the suspect drove away in a green Nissan Xterra sport utility vehicle. The article goes on. Joan suffered a fracture to the orbital bone of her eye socket. While her husband was driving her to the hospital, she suffered a heart attack. And eventually, fingerprints and tips led them to this individual by the name of Teddy Robertson. And I was like, read things like that and hear stories like that. First of all, I'm, I'm wondering to myself, is, is it just me, or are there a lot of these stories that the news focuses on, all these little acts of violence and all of that? I mean, I, I remember in the Midwest being an occasional one of these, but here I got here, and it's like it's on the news all the time about this person breaking into this place, and here's Shasta County's most wanted, and here's these different things, and this story here stood out. Because even in my pre-Christian days, I wouldn't throw a coffee mug at an old lady and hit an old lady. And you say, well, in yesteryear, they wouldn't have done it either. Maybe so. And he's probably getting worked over. If he's not in solitary confinement at the jail, he's probably going to get worked over by somebody in jail today or yesterday. But this type of crime, why would Teddy get to the point where he would allow anger, or any one of us would get to the point where we, we would allow anger to rule us, to take over, to literally intoxicate us to the point where we would shatter somebody else's life? Why would we allow that? And you say, well, it would never happen to me. And in yesteryear, it would never happen either. People respected their elders in yesteryear. But I'm going to take you to a story way back in yesteryear, millennia ago, that shows that this very problem has been happening for years and years and years. From the very beginning of the fall of mankind, anger ruling has undone relationships, has undone oneness with God, has shattered lives, and more than likely, some of you have pieces that have been being able to be put back together by God's grace because of anger. And today, we're going to see that not only does anger rule, but sin in general, when it rules the heart, can shatter the oneness that God has planned for each one of us. And so I take you back to Genesis. 
probably long before this picture would have ever taken place. If you notice in this picture, there's all kinds of children. There's, there's the lambs there. There's the cherub guarding there. There's that garden of Eden there. There's the aging Adam and Eve. But long before they were aging, they had children, right? We were in Genesis 3 before. Now we're going to go down to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to find 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Oneness, even in a fallen world, God tries to establish oneness again. In Genesis 4, 1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And some people say, well, those are almost words of her looking forward to the, to the helper, the, the restorer to come. But think about it. God said, as a result of the curse, as a result of the fall of mankind, she would bear through pain. And she has just experienced that. And so imagine a world where you hadn't known pain before, where the plants didn't come out and prick you like, the thorn, like those thistles in the, in the ranch I was growing up at, a world where, where you really didn't even know much about childbirth, let alone pain through childbirth. Our world has never known childbirth without pain since its beginning. It's been there. And yes, the epidurals and all that helped. I can, I can see that. But at the same time, the body's whole process. She goes through that whole process. She brings forth this male child. And could it be, could it be within her heart that she felt, maybe this is the one. I've got a man child from the Lord. And it's not really just a coincidence that she uses that word because wasn't there going to be a he, a man child born in Genesis 3 that would come and crush the head of the serpent? But unfortunately, we also remember from that text in Genesis 3, 15 and onward, that there were two kinds of offspring. Were there not? The serpent would have his offspring, and the woman would have her offspring. From her offspring would come one to crush the head of the serpent. And so here we find the very first human being born through birth. Though she's hopeful that he would be the one, we all know how the story ends, and he's actually of the offspring of the serpent. And so it's a tale of two choices. We know the story. I'm going to review some of it with you, and some of it I'm going to assume that you know. Again, she bore his brother Abel. You could put the comma after the word bore. Again, she bore and his brother Abel, right? So she conceives again. She has another child. His name is Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a tiller of the ground. Got these two different paths that they're doing, both agrarian. But in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. Firstlings of his flock. That's code language for the Mosaic community of a sacrifice for worship. All right, so what we find here is not only is it just any lamb out there, but the firstborn lamb. Firstlings of the flock. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Wouldn't you be angry? <laughs> Here you are. You brought your best for the Lord, right? And I know, people like to defend Cain. But I'm going to build a series of arguments that show that really Cain, deep down inside, it was, had nothing to do with the offering. That was an outward expression of rebellion inside of his heart. We like to say, well, poor Cain, he brought the best he had, and, and he, why should he, as the older brother, have to go to, to Abel anyway and, and trade, you know? God should have accepted his sacrifice. But I want you to notice here, it says, in the course of time, and then it specifically says, firstlings of the flock. 
specific offering for a specific time. They both knew about it. They both came, but they both didn't bring what was prescribed. So I believe he knew ahead of time and enough time where he could have prepared, but he chose not to. And if you could have prepared and you chose not to, and you come before God, and you shrug and say it doesn't matter, isn't that in a way an act of rebellion? You know, where did they learn all of this from anyway? Where else do you see in the Bible plants and animals having to do with a relationship with God? Remember how we said evil was the undoing of oneness? And what happened after oneness was undone, where they ate that fruit? What kind of clothing did they put on it first? Plants, right? And then what does God give them instead? Animals. So you have plants and animals back at the beginning when they fell. It's, this is echoing back and saying it's almost like the same choice is coming before the kids. And Cain brings the plants, and we find Abel brings the animal. Every day they had reminders of God's love. Every day that they wore those clothes, every Sabbath that they came together, every day they had a reminder of a promised restore. They were wearing the clothing to prove it. One would come and have his blood shed, and then every week would come. So isn't that important? Shouldn't you have a daily reminder of Jesus? Ellen White says you should spend a thoughtful hour each day thinking about, especially his closing scenes, his death, his sacrifice as a lamb for you. So there they are every day having that reminder, and then they come. They come on Sabbath. Here we are on Sabbath, right? Physically, maybe resting, but also spiritually saying, I'm trusting in him for my provision. And then that should have affected their relationships, should it not have? And it says, in time, they came together. In the course of time. Was it a specific religious festival time? Or was it the Sabbath? Some people believe, and you don't have to look and Seventh-day Adventist sources define this, okay? I'll put it up on the screen for you. Fawcett's Bible Dictionary, a very well-known one. You can get it off the internet. This guy looks and uses that, uses that phrase in time or in an appointed time or in the course of time, and he traces it on down and says, it could be that in East of Eden, they came before the cherubic symbols of God. That was probably the appointed place of the offering. So there they are in process of time, literally at the end of days in the Hebrew, namely at some fixed sacred season. And he says, such as the Sabbath. I didn't say that, but he says that. So imagine that. Imagine there you are before the cherub. Imagine there you are at the appointed place of offering. Imagine there you are, and God has told you ahead of time what to bring as an act of worship. And instead you bring almost polar opposite. What the, not the plants, not the animal, but the, what the animal eats. And so it shows two kinds of worship. Would it really surprise us that this same theme goes all the way down to the book of Revelation? And we have the same problem at the end of time. Those who wander and follow the beast and those who follow the lamb. I mean, you have the same type of thing at the end of time, and it's all over worship. And so it was like that at the beginning. Two familiar items, the plants and the animals, two methods of worshiping. One was a worship that was out of rebellion. The other 
out of a pure heart. And you say, well, poor Cain. Yeah, maybe God <clears throat> gave him a prescribed time, said, come on over on Sabbath and, and bring that offering and let's worship together. But, but he would have had to go to his brother. Well, look at this. This is Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3. And if you read Spiritual Gifts, you know the Conflict of the Ages series that goes, you know, you got the beginning, you got patriarchs and prophets, prophets and kings, you go all the way down to the Great Controversy. Well, that was all part of one vision, one dream that this lady had, okay? And so she, in Spiritual Gifts, when she first wrote down this vision, she wrote it in little books called Spiritual Gifts. And she says, she saw Abel advise his brother not to come before the Lord without the blood of a sacrifice. Cain, being the eldest, would not listen to his brother. He despised his counsel, and with doubt and murmuring, notice that, in regard to the necessity of the ceremonial offerings, he presented his offering, but God did not accept it. So even, he didn't even have to go to his brother. His brother came to him and began to work with him. But anger begins to rise even then. Imagine the older, older brother, they're getting prideful and they're doubting and they're beginning to murmur and saying, yeah, you know. And we know Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. How, what visible token would they have had? You've read your Bible probably. You look at Gideon and there he is and, and he puts a sacrifice out there on an altar. What happens? The Lord comes and consumes, calls it the angel of the Lord, comes and consumes it, goes up, and it's consumed by fire. What's Elijah do? Put, builds an altar, right? And what happens there? Prophets of Baal, they can't get theirs consumed by fire, but what does God do? He sends the fire down as a token. There you are in the wilderness with the temple. What does God do? When we find the Day of Atonement, he sends the Shekinah glory down. We find he has tokens, visible tokens of acceptance. So I, I tend to believe that more than likely, since by the time you get to Gideon and onward, they see the fire coming down as accepting the sacrifice, more than likely fire came down and consumed this sacrifice. We're not told directly from the text. But there is some way of showing one was accepted, the other was not. And so Elijah's story really is here as well. Choosing, who will you serve? The Lord is God, serve him. Baal is God, serve him. And Cain's faith really goes and spreads throughout the ancient Near East, and it's opposed to this worship of God. So there's no token of acceptance. And notice Cain's reply. For Cain, his offering, he had no regard. God had no regard. So Cain was very angry. His countenance fell. God did not look on it favorably because Cain had had the appointed time. Cain had known that it was the firstborn of the flock. Everything was known. It's not like God just said, hey, uh, on your way over to bring the sacrifice, uh, yeah, I see you got the vegetables, but I want you to go back and get a lamb. He didn't do that. He had an appointed time, an appointed place, an appointed sacrifice. And so why would God look on that favorably then if Cain brings something that is not asked for? So God doesn't look on it favorably. It's kind of like when you tell a, a young person, I won't say children because I've got lots of children, <clears throat> this is what you want them to do, and they, they do just the opposite, right? How does that make you as a parent feel? Feels good about it, right? You all feel good about that? Especially the really defiant when they do it. Makes you feel good. No, I wouldn't look on it favorably either and just shrug it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> God does not shrug it off. He takes this very seriously. He does not look on it favorably. 
And then it says, because of that, Cain's countenance fell. That's strange. It says he's very angry, and then his countenance, is he angry and sad at the same time? It's, it's an emotion war going on here, but also the idea of countenance falling is like someone throwing themselves on the ground in anger. You've never seen that before, have you? <clears throat> Here's the first parents. They've got their two boys. Have they seen them fall down in anger and do a temper tantrum? Now, we're not told if physically he's doing that, but inwardly he is doing that. So angry that he can't control himself. Inside, he's just throwing himself down to the ground in a temper tantrum. And God says, you know, I, God can see the heart. That's not acceptable. And you would think, if you're going to throw yourself down like that, inwardly, that you would sense, this doesn't feel good. Uh, what's going on with me? But he doesn't do that. There's no record of him humbling himself and coming before God and saying, I got a problem here. Instead, he rises in anger and he begins, begins going about another task. A task of blood sacrifice, but not the kind that God ever asked for. And so the Lord said to Cain, not only has Abel inter interceded, but the Lord himself, the one who placed the cherub there at the gate, the one who created the world, the one who gave them the rest day, the one that gave them the promise of the restorer, he himself comes and says to Cain, you are out of line. Why are you angry? Why are you burning up? In the Hebrew. Anger is like this burning, right? Why is that happening? Why has your countenance fallen? Why are you doing this? If you do well, like I asked you to do, Will you not be accepted? We all long for those words of approval from parents, from people around us, from God. Well done, acceptance. And God's saying exactly what he needs to do. Is it something hard? Is it something within his reach? Can he access it by faith and bring that lamb and, and say, I'm, I want to do what's right, God? He can do that. God's saying, you can do that. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. A couple of points here. Anger. Typically, you find as you trace that word through the Old Testament and the New, it has this idea of a burning sensation. Kind of like when someone gets angry and their cheeks start getting red, right? Clenching. But what's happening? The emotion itself isn't bad. Okay? It, it tells you there's something going on. There's some turmoil. There's, there's something that's causing you to feel that way. But the burning, can a burn get out of control? Yes, and I was there in southeast Kansas one time, and, and there we were getting ready to have a bonfire of the church. And bless his heart, the, the host had this huge, I mean, he had these little mini campfires there for us to roast on. And then he had this huge burn pile with gasoline on it. And he takes the match, and he lights it. And you know what happened, right? Whoosh! And this huge burn pile, it must have been taller than me. I just remember over there, I was standing over by the little fire, looking over and saying, really? <laughs> That's a bonfire. I mean, he's got these huge logs on there and the, all of this stuff on there, and it's just, it's taken off. I mean, if it's six feet tall when it was dry and standing there without the fire. I mean, it's, it's just taken off. And there he is with his little hose. And I'm thinking, That's not going to be enough. 
And I'm just watching, and I can see him, because there's only one hose around there, and he's spraying around at the bottom of the ground, and, and he's trying to shoot it up into it. And I'm like, man, this could really go out of control, could it not? We don't know about out-of-control fires. I and mean, whereas before, it was just these little small campfires, here's this huge one, just way out of control. And it's almost like two pictures before us. Yes, a fire can be controlled and used for good, can it not? But when it gets way out of control, it's destructive. No longer cleansing like when you've taken all your debris and you're making a burn pile, but it can actually begin to consume, kind of like the fire I saw, was it Wednesday night? Anyway, the, the week blurred. I was on my way home from Anderson. I'm going out Happy Valley, and there I'm on Olinda Road, and all of a sudden this, this fire truck, it goes on by me there. Its lights are going. I pulled over, and it is zipping all the way out to Happy Valley. And the thought hit me that, hmm, I wonder if that's close to my house. <laughs> that it's close to somebody's house, obviously. Fire season's already started. Man, this is... So anyway, he goes down. He must have been going. I don't know how fast he was going. I was going 55. But there he goes, zipping by me. And the next thing, probably about five miles down the road, I see him coming back. And so I'm starting to pull over. And I, sh I didn't really have to. But he, he had missed the turnoff. He didn't know exactly where he was going. So he, he, he's zooming back, and then he finds the place. And I look over there, the direction he's going, and I'm like, wow, that's a huge glow over there. And the smoke coming up, and found out later it was somebody's house going up. And I was like, whoa. And so they're all over there piling on it, trying to control it. And this is what we're talking about here. A small, contained, kumbaya, marshmallow roasting fire is warm and fuzzy. But when you get to this out-of-control business, and if we're deeply honest, we've all been there, then it's destructive. And that's what's happening here. I'm not here to say that your emotions are bad in and of themselves, but God expects us to bring those to him. And that's not what Cain does here. And you know what this is likened to? Drunk Christians. You've all been drunk in your life. You say, no, I haven't. You have. Let me show you. Right here. Our High Calling. This little devotional by Ellen White. says, when one once gives place to an angry spirit, he's just as much intoxicated as the man who has put the glass to his lips. You say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. I've gotten mad a time or two. But I've never gotten drunk. Okay, that's fine. But isn't it the same? Can you not get high or drunk off of anger? Could it not control you and rule you like God's saying there? Obviously, it's true because God says, watch out. It could rule you. And when it rules you, it's going to control you. And when it controls you, it's going to undo your relationships and your relationship with me. Christ treats anger as murder. Not the initial part, probably, but the idea of passionate words. He goes on, describes how... how we, when we're angry, we start thinking things that are really not true about the other person, and we start saying passionate words against them. He who utters them is not cooperating with God to save his fellow man. We start tearing the other person down, and we're not saving them then, are we? It's like throwing gasoline on the fire. Who would ever do that? And then we expect that somehow God's going to just take a hose and spray it down. He who utters them is not cooperating with God. And in heaven, this wicked railing against your fellow man is placed in the same list as common swearing. If some of us would look in the mirror, myself included, 
often enough. We would say, anger, ruling me, undoes oneness, but to heaven, I've just cussed in God's face. And I feel condemned <laughs> when I think of it that way. But is that where I stay? Feeling guilty and condemned? Or is there some way that it can be used for his glory? I believe it can be used for his glory because she says, if it rules, there's not one iota of the love of God there. I've labored in my heart over the last eight years as to, Lord, how can I and we as Christians be a more loving community of faith? And I read things like this, and I say to myself, if these cherished sins, this one or any of the other cherished sins you can name in your life, are present, and we just attack one another all the time, then the love of God cannot be there. I will say this and say this again, publicly. If anybody comes to talk to me about your fellow Christian in this church or in your community, I'm going to ask you one question. Have you talked to them? If you have a complaint with me, I invite you, I have office hours, come talk to me. If I'm wrong, I look in the mirror a lot, I'll probably admit it. You got a 99% chance if I'm wrong, I'm going to admit it. If my pride gets in, that's that 1%. But we've got to be a community where we can go to one another and not allow these type of things to rule and not allow putting people down to rule. Because if we don't give this to Jesus individually and as a group, I tell you what, I've said this many times, churches are awful nice coffins. Make these beautiful buildings and inside are dead men bones. We don't want to be a community of faith like that. And so I'm mostly, as I read this, thinking of myself. I want to manage these feelings. I want to be like maybe God and, and maybe get irritated or something over an unholy thing going on in the church. Like God got angry at Israel and said, this is ridiculous, you know? That's one thing. You know, the children being abused and, and, and God's picture being just totally un unbiblically painted before the people as they worship this, this image and all of that. And no wonder God got mad because they're not even pointing to him anymore. They're pointing to this man-made picture of God that nobody even wants to have anything to do with. That idol required sacrifice. Not just any sacrifice. A lot of those idols required child sacrifice. No wonder God gets angry at that. No wonder Moses' anger burned when he comes down and finds them worshiping that type of thing. Yeah, he struck the rock twice and he, had, he needed some anger management, but think about it. Wouldn't you after a while just get, oh, burn? No wonder he was up on the mountain a lot. I mean, just God, help me. And Samuel, Saul's anger just burning to the point where he'll chase David through any cave and crevice that he can try to find him at. And even when his own son's telling him, David's your friend. Nehemiah, I want that type of zeal where they would build the house of the Lord. You know, in your bulletin, he talks about these different stewardship options. Really, we're here to take care of this place because we want to come together as a community of faith with one another in a common purpose. And so they had that common purpose. In Jesus' time, they get down to that temple in his time, and he comes in there and he sees how they're misrepresenting him, giving them lame lambs, False gospels, right? All kinds of weird messages about God. When you come to this temple, it's all about your money. You know, 
No wonder he got irritated with that. But you don't find him burning over like Cain. You find him confronting the behavior and showing them what they should do. It should be a house of prayer for all nations. No boundaries. And that's where we find the difference between Cain's anger and we find the Lord and his anger. We find Jesus, the Lord himself, who told Cain, your anger's getting out of control. He gets angry and he becomes human, and he bottles it up and puts it to a holy purpose. He says, this is a house of prayer. And they wonder why he had such authority. I want that type of process. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about how he really could not face the problems that he faced without bottling up that anger and letting it go forth. Because he had to remind himself of a holy purpose in front of him, that this prejudice, these type of barriers, was not of Christ, and he would go for it, and he even, I can even quote him, give you the quote sometime, he even says, I bottled up and pretty much let it go on this problem. That's what we need to think about. A zealous kind of anger. Now, young people, there's your scripture, your answer. Mitchell and LJ and the rest of you guys. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll leave it up there for the young people. Verses 26 and onward. This, by the time you get to the time of Jesus, they've seen true love. They've seen appropriate anger. And the only reason why I'm showing you this now is to show you that probably Cain's problem was deeper than the actual anger issue. It was rebellion, and it was a heart that had not been cleansed. You look here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 32. It says in verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. This concept of oneness I've been talking about, it's just all the way throughout the Bible. And when anger rules, and when evil is amongst you, oneness is undone. Says, be ye angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. I remember I heard that in my grandpa's house a few times when I was an angry young person. I put my fingers in my ear and not want to listen to it. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. That's what Cain was doing. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. And I really didn't like that one either when he would read it. Working with his hands what is good, and he may have something to give him who has need. In other words, there's restitution. It doesn't mean that you just get a grace that you're forgiven and there's no, nothing that you should, be, you should do to make restitution. Verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Grace. If God's grace dwells in us, should it not show through us? And I know if some people don't like that word grace, okay, then fine. The Greek says kindness, favor. Okay, if God's favor and kindness has been shown to us and we have accepted that, should it not then show through us? It should. And that's what Paul's saying here. Our words should show that. In verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Think of the sealing as an end time thing. The Sabbath at the end is a sealing message in a sense that if the Holy Spirit has led you all along there and it comes time to choose, then which way are you going to go? Are you going to keep going with the way the Holy Spirit has led you or are you going to go along with what everybody else is telling you? And so we find really that begins now. 
the sealing in our hearts begins now. The decisions that Daniel and his friends made were made long before they hit the king's court. And the same thing happens to us. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, there's that anger, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. There's the key. If someone is picking on you and provoking you to anger, that's what the word anger here is working at, someone like jabbing at you, then can you be the type of person, can I be the type of person that says, so what? Let them think that. They're not going to control me. That's what Paul's saying here. You can literally be provoked and you give no opportunity to the devil. And if we can have that type of control, I believe in a way you, it's victory over this anger. And then you funnel it into good words, not the evil talk, but building up words. We put away all the malice, and then we recognize as a community of faith and as individuals that we do all that because Christ forgave us. That's what that lamb was really pointing Cain to, if he would have accepted it. When you feel an angry spirit rising, take firm hold of Jesus Christ by faith. I'm not the only one who says that. Utter no word. Danger lies in the utterance of a single word when you're angry. For a valley of passionate utterances will follow. The man who gives way to folly in speaking passionate words bears false witness. Because, see, what happens is when that, when that takes control of you, your brain's not thinking clearly. You start saying things that aren't even, you, seeing things that aren't even there. And then you start speaking those things. He exaggerates every defect he thinks he sees. He's too blind and unreasonable to be convinced of his madness, his transgression. He transgresses the commandments of God, and his imagination is perverted by the inspiration of Satan. He permits Satan to take the helm. In other words, you become the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And guide him wherever he pleases. But there is hope while the hours of probation linger through the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice she begins with that, and she ends with that, and that's the same way Ephesians does it as well. Cain had that same provision, and so for me, practically, what do I do? I, I stops anger, and I don't like that acronym. You want to have the word stop, okay? To me, this is where anger stops, and first you find, there I am, it could be a situation at home, it could be a situation here, it could be wherever, you know, out in the community. I've been cut off a time or two as well, haven't you? And so, can you find a way to stop and begin reflecting on what's going on in you? If I'm in a situation with somebody else, I may even say, you know what, I really need to, I really need to take a break. I'll request it. If they don't want, want to let it go, I'll say, I'm, I'm going to the other room. And so, stop and then tell as i'm sitting there in my chair in my bedroom which is my usual place where i sit when i start getting things going way out of that they need to slow down then i start saying you know what really was my boy or my wife saying anyway or what was that person saying on the phone anyway and i start thinking from their point of view and then it begins to calm me down and say well maybe they were thinking you know Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And then I observe. I, at that point, I'm willing to say, is, look at myself and say, is my heart rate going down? <laughs> yeah. Are my hands unclenched? Yeah. Is, am I gritting my teeth anymore? I start observing my body, and I start saying, Lord, help me to relax. Help me to chill, because I really don't need 
that's controlling me. And before I leave that chair, I pray and say, Lord, help your peace to guide me as I leave this room. And then the last thing, I seek resolution. Because, yeah, you can pray and all of that, but when you leave that place, wherever it is where you sit down and try to be still, you know what? You've got to resume that conversation. Because if you don't resume that conversation with a good attitude, then it will be just the opposite. It's almost like you never went and spent that time with the Lord. 99% of the time, this works for me. Sometimes my pride gets in the way and I don't, I don't take those opportunities. But to be still before the Lord is really the answer. And Cain did not allow that to happen. Cain got to the point where he allowed that anger to rule him, even though God warned him not to. And it says, he said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. We're not sure exactly everything else he said, but that's the sentence that Moses quotes. Let's go out to the field, brother. And so he goes out to the field with his brother. Why did he ask him to go out to the field? We're not told from the text. Maybe he's going to bring a good sacrifice and wants Cain to give him, or Abel to give him a, a deal on the land. I don't know. We don't know from the text. But he gets him out there. And let me ask you something. To this point, does his brother have good reason to trust him? Does Abel have good reason to trust Cain? Yeah, Cain's had a few fits and all of that, but he's my brother. And I've grown up with my brother. And I've followed him around since I was a little boy. And he's been my big brother. He has reason to trust Cain, doesn't he? This is a field of betrayal. We know it happened later with Judas, did we not? Another field of betrayal. This is a mini picture of the cross. And so here comes the innocent one coming and presenting himself, and he engages, of course, and it says Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and this is the idea of somehow he's over the top of him. How did he get over the top of Abel? Either they were sitting down, he gets up and starts hitting on him, or, or it's describing how there he is over the top of him with the death blow coming. And it's almost like heaven snapshots it and says there he is right over the top of his brother. Imagine the heartache of heaven over this. Imagine watching every murder that's ever existed in this world, every torture that's existed in this world, and, and you're heaven watching all this, and here's the first one. And there he is right over top of his brother. Who knows if it was a club or a fist. or I mean, they were strong people back then. Beats his brother to death. Don't know what he's done with the body, but he said, the Lord says to Cain, and it's the same Lord that's created them both, where is Abel your brother? Not just Abel, not where is Abel, where is Abel your brother? You guys were friends. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You, you get this. I mean, if you've had kids, you get this. The firstborn looking after the little brother. And that little brother follows that firstborn around and loves that brother. And the big brother turns on the little one? If I didn't have kids, I wouldn't have such emotion over this, but imagine heaven's emotion over this. The big brother turning on the little one, and the Lord said, what have you done? It's like the same question in the garden. Where are you? What, you're so far away. What have you done? Imagine the parent coming out there and finding that dead body or, or figuring it out that the boy's dead. What have you done? It's the same utterance of the heavenly parent then. What have you done? 
the voice of your brother's blood's crying out. You're lying about it. You're trying to cover it up. But that blood will cry out for generations. It's going to cry out all the way down to the end of time. And yes, there's end time scenario uh, information here for us because at the end of time, it's the same type of thing. But there, I can imagine Abel down, maybe even begging his brother, saying, no. And then there his brother is killing him. And yes, you think the word keeper has to do with a flock of sheep, but that little brother felt like his big brother was the shepherd. And there he is, betraying his brother in the field of blood. Not the last field of blood. Because as we go on down through Genesis, we find there's animal skins, blood. We find that down there, Shane, Cain sheds innocent blood. We find in Genesis 9, animals that shed men's blood are not innocent. They must be killed because men were made in the image of God. You start putting these puzzle pieces together and murder is something grotesque. Joseph's brothers did not want to be guilty of shedding innocent blood, and so they sell him off. And then we find in Genesis 49, one is going to come out of Judah that's going to wash his robes in the blood of the grape, prefiguring how he's going to come to save us. And you say, well, I've never betrayed somebody. I never had anybody looking up to me or trusting me like that. Really? Never? Or maybe you've been betrayed. No matter which side of it you're on, the story bleeds the human experience and says, this needs to be reconciled. Whether it's your words, your actions, negativity, We've all betrayed somebody. And that blood guilt cries out for redemption to take place, for repentance, for restitution. Because as I go on down through the Bible, you know, Cain leaves, goes east of Eden. <laughs> he uses that word east of Eden. That's where the cherub is, right? So he's walking away from that now. And the story gets even sadder because there he is. He's marked. God still cares for him, still protects him, doesn't let people kill him. And then a false oneness occurs, one that goes all the way down to Revelation. you got Cain, you got, yeah, and some people say there's other daughters out there. It's probably a daughter of Adam, that's one. Plus, then he has a child, Enoch, and this false oneness begins to permeate the earth, whereas Seth's oneness begins to try to permeate the earth. And that conflict continues all the way down through the flood and beyond. And that conflict continues today. Anger brings consequences but hope continues. Look at that in Genesis 4. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called him Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another child. Instead of Abel, she even knew Abel was righteous, for Cain killed him. So out of Seth's line, it says the image of God later on. Seth was in the image of Adam, who was in the image of God. Out of Seth's line, God tries to restore oneness. Hebrews 11 tells me that that anger was really a deeper issue. Cain really needed to be forgiven by God. In Hebrews 11, verse 4. In 1 John 3, 12, Cain's works were evil and Abel's were righteous, which means if Cain is seen as unrighteous and Abel as righteous, then there was a heart issue. Cain needed to be forgiven, and he would not accept it. Like in Matthew 25, where we do all kinds of good works, and Jesus says, I don't know you. Cain did all kinds of work, but God didn't know him. So we need to know God. And in Jude 11, Cain is lumped together with Sodom and Gomorrah, the slanderer, or Satan, and the sexual immorality of Balaam. There was something deeper than the anger. There was something deeper. He needed to be cleansed by that restorer who that lamb represented. And he refused 
to be cleansed. And so we can come to that restore with our anger, with our bitterness, with our desire to be striving, or whatever our cherished sin is. Because if you say you don't have it, I know Ellen White talks about cherished sin and bringing it before the cross, bringing it before Jesus. If we bring whatever it is, it won't be in our own natural ability, but through the grace given of Jesus Christ. He will prevail through whatever is trying to rule you. And so I think of the cross. Just like in the children's story, that beautiful flower and the thorns together. Here we have, do we not have it? Plants, or at least there they are, crown of thorns, right? And an animal, human being, Jesus representing a lamb dying together in the same story. But then you even have the story of Cain and Abel, do you not? Isn't Jesus called the elder brother of the human race? Isn't he dying for the younger? Can't we truly trust and follow him? But he's betrayed in the field of blood. Find that, that Judas buys that field. Remember that? And so this is the place of healing. Jesus is the place of healing. And I'm not the only one who says this. I'm going to go on down here, and this is Spurgeon. He says, as we get down there, he says the same thing to Ellen White. He says, I must go to the cross with it, whatever it is, my angry temper. It's the only way in which I can ever kill it. I must go to the cross with it, say to Jesus, Lord, I trust thee to deliver me from it. This is the only way to give it a death blow. Are you covetous? Do you feel the world entangle you? You may struggle against this evil so long, long as you please, but if it be your besetting sin, or cherished sin, the way Ellen White puts it, you will never be delivered from it in any way but by the blood of Jesus. Take it to Christ. Tell him, Lord, I've trusted thee, and thy name is Jesus, for thou dost save thy people from their sins. Lord, this is one of my sins. Save me from it. Ordinances are nothing without Christ as a means of mortification. Your prayers and your repentances and your tears, the whole of them put together are worth nothing apart from him. We know even Lucifer wanted to repent. Judas felt guilty. Nothing apart from Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good or helpless saints either, if we would see ourselves. You must be conquerors through him who hath loved you. If conquerors at all are laurels, everybody knows what that means? Laurels, a crown that they would give to a victor, must grow amongst the olives in Gethsemane. So Calvary, the place where plants and lamb come together, a place where the older brother does do the right thing, and he dies for us. That's where we must go. With the anger, if it feels, you feel like it's ruling, with whatever sin you feel like is ruling, take it to the restorer, take it to Jesus, and be still before him. He will forgive. He will cleanse. And that anger will turn out to be a good kumbaya anger, bringing you closer to each other and to the Lord you love. Closing song is to that effect. It says, Be still, my soul. Whatever is on your heart, let it be brought to Jesus and be still, my soul.
Leave to thy God to 